So for this episode of What's the Tease, we'll be pouring ourselves a tall glass of badass with Lady Josephine. Hey! Welcome to What's the Tease, Lady Josephine. Thank you so much. Your tagline, I, I kind of had to put on my best North American accent for it and have the tall glass of badass, just because for us it'll be a tall glass of badass. <laughs> I mean, that works just as well, right? It still rhymes. It does indeed. Let's hear from you. Lady Josephine, a tall glass of badass. Oh, damn. The Wiggle Room was going to, at some point, do drinks for mm -hmm. all of the, the performers that were performing there regularly. That's our local burlesque home here in Montreal. And uh, I drink Jameson straight oh, too yeah. much backstage as sort of my, my drink of choice. And we were going to have stray Jameson served in a tall glass, which is very eccentric. So mm -hmm. that's perfect for my branding. And then just have a couple drumsticks of chicken on the side. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Yeah. So Lady Josephine, you are based in Montreal, Canada. Has this always been the case? Ever since I've been doing burlesque, yes. Um, I came here for school. I went to McGill University here. So I've been here since 2010, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm originally from Vancouver, born and raised on the west coast of Canada. In Montreal, a lot of the sort of MCs refer to the term an anglophone and a francophone. Yes. How has the yes, assimilation yes. been for you? So one of the reasons I came here is because uh, my mother being a European put me in French immersion school in Vancouver. So even though it's a very Anglophone city on the West Coast, um, she decided to do that. And so I was taking all my school in French up until grade seven. Uh, going into high school, I was just doing French class, but at a bit more advanced level. And that's one of the reasons I decided to come to university in Montreal. I had never even been here, but people had oh, told wow. me it was like the Europe of Canada and mm -hmm. um, since my background is European and I spoke French that was really appealing but uh, I didn't use my French at all uh, when I was at the McGill in the McGill bubble student bubble as we say because it's such an anglophone community and as you get to know Montreal you realize that history of McGill is not is not not problematic <laughs> and there's a reason that there's not very many like Quebec people going to this school and that it's a mm -hmm. lot of people from the rest of the country and internationally so I was really happy to get out of my degree and start working and that's when I feel like I really moved to Montreal in a sense and and became more part of the city so uh, working in French um and eventually teaching burlesque in French and in English. Oh, wow. Amazing. Speaking of uh, the time when you were growing up, you grew up trained in dance, studied in mime and theater. Like, how did you come to discover burlesque? I discovered it. My partner at the time brought me to a show in Vancouver 
um, the marvelous Burgundy Bricks uh, was putting on her weekly show, Kitty Nights, an infamous show in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And I was back home for the summer from my studies with my lover boy. And he <laughs> was like, hey, this seems like something you might like. And I think I've told this story before, but, you know, we didn't have great seats. And so we were sitting beside each other, but it was only really um, the person on the outside that could see. And I was so obsessed with what was happening on stage. I could have cared less that he couldn't see what was happening. I was just like, yeah, (laughs) that's, you know, you can sit there. Thanks for taking me. This is my moment. And I was glued, glued to the stage. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. What are the aspects of the art form that drew you in? At the time, I was living in a household of um, sort of progressive, feminist. Um, we were all part-time bike mechanics, um, studying like international development. I was in environmental studies. Um, the goal was to like shower as little as possible clean your clothes as little possible, Mm -hmm. wear only like black ripped things, go to protests, talk about gender politics, you know, uh, bake cookies. God, you got to love Canada. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And there was so many things I loved about that. And um, I think I still am that person. But I hadn't grown up with that. And I missed... um, ballerina me and uh, ball gown wearing me and the tradition that my family in Norway had always um, proposed, which was really sort of over the top um, structure to celebration and like drinks at four and five different types of cutlery at your meal. And this goes Mm -hmm. with that. And this sort of like really exaggerated sort of parody of what it means to um, dress up and celebrate something. Mm-hmm. Um, and burlesque is that on stage, but it's also feminist. So it was both parts of my life in one thing. Plus, it was an invitation to come back to dance after just being a student for many years, uh, having stopped doing that. Mm-hmm. What kind of uh, dance styles were you trained in growing up? I did lots of ballet from like five years old. My feet were turned in as a kid. I was tripping over my own toes, um, pigeon-toed. So Mm -hmm. my mom put me in ballet classes. And then I did all kinds of other stuff. I was just like a dance nerd. So um, jazz, tap, modern I don't know. I think I've, you know, I've tried a class of everything because it's super fun. Belly dance, anything I could get my hands on. Amazing. So you're famous for um, your style of mixing strong characters with classical dance and mime. What else do you credit as influences for Lady Josephine? I think my family in Norway, as I already mentioned, is a Mm -hmm. big part of it. It's really important for me that burlesque and any art is telling a personal story Um, it just feels more powerful and authentic that way so yeah I think a lot of the time I'm taking inspiration from my grandmother and the the powerful women in my family who were incredibly stylish they were really part of the the upper class in Norway and were playing 
the hyper feminine role. Mm -hmm. Um, And I get to ignore all the bad things that went with that. Right. So Mm -hmm. the way that she was booted out of society when she got a divorce uh, from an unhappy marriage, you know, Mm -hmm. I get to just focus on the 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 dresses and the poise and and the aesthetic of it all yeah Mm. um so there's that and romantic relationships for sure like I think every major relationship I've had has ended up as a major act of mine so if in one relationship (laughs) I feel like I want to eat my partner because I'm so in love with them then you know, I'll have an act that's about, you know, love as as feasting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think currently in my current relationship, I feel like my partner is very good at making me love my pussy and having mm-hmm. this like pussy celebration. And I feel more comfortable in my body in this relationship than I have in any other. And so the act that I'm working on now is is really about pussy love as a religion all right so it's all coming together now (laughs) (laughs) yeah because I've been like seeing you posting about uh, it's like reference to the pussy and I'm like okay lady joe where you going with this that it's been a theme in my work for a long time like uh Roxy who I work with here at the school she's like okay you know I almost I I make pussy jokes and pussy references maybe too much in class uh Mm. although I don't you know I don't think there's too much but you know I think I do it to compensate for how little it gets talked about in the rest of of the world and the life and I know that for my students probably going through their week you know I'm the only person talking about pussies with them, so I might as well do it a lot. Mm-hmm. So what is the process behind developing your acts? The process behind developing my acts is pretty structured. So because it's become something that I teach a lot, um, it's that feedback loop of as you deconstruct your process and teach it, you end up using the process that you've created to learn to teach people yourself Mm -hmm. so uh, (laughs) that's that's been great so now I fall back on the structure that I've given to my students um, in order to uh, build my own acts and gosh it starts from anywhere so Dior started with being obsessed with Galliano's costumes for Dior in the in the early 2000s and from there okay, what's a story that I can tell that's like really high fashion, but is is sharing something uh, really meaningful, which, I mean, I think that is the backbone of, of most of my acts. So high fashion, but mm-hmm. saying something meaningful. And how did I get to the pussy worship thing? Your uh, current relationship? <laughs> yeah, current, totally current relationship. And maybe having this behavior of, of talking about it all the time in class being reflected back at me with people being like, you talk about that a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, how people's reflection of your identity makes it clearer to you. So exploring that. And I always knew it was going to have flowers, right? Just as like an aesthetic mm-hmm. aspect um, and uh, the, the whole Dior thing and springtime and those colors. 
flowers, pussy, oh my God, you know, then it starts to come together. There's a, there's a link there, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. This is, this is the story that wants to be told from there. It's breaking the music down into your music map. So really writing everything down, tables, what's happening, where, um, what is the arc? What is the build? What are the the punches? Um, and what kind are they? Um, I like to have a nice balance of like big moments that are costume related, big moments that are movement related, big moments that are face related. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to place those in the structure. And then with this one, it's been a lot of back and forth in terms of being transportable and trying to envision what kind of show I want to do this in. Mm -hmm. Um, Do I commit to having a giant prop or do I want to make this a more accessible act that I can bring places? How accessible, that idea of accessibility, oh my gosh, I turn around it all the time because I do a lot of shows here in Montreal that are in clubs and bars where people are not expecting to see burlesque so Mm -hmm. you know you're constantly teaching them and welcoming them into the world so layering um pussy worship and celebration on top of that like hey we're doing striptease it's going to be okay it's beautiful welcome is not always appropriate so yeah I'm still trying to figure out that balance with this particular act Mm -hmm. and then I like to use the costume pieces for different variations of the act so let's say like using those costume pieces for more of a classic number that just gets me really familiar with how they function allows me to discover the best way of of using them mechanically the Mm -hmm. costume pieces to then bring that back to the more quote-unquote big act art projects Mm -hmm. it's almost Um, like a burlesque stylist in a way whenever a stylists are working on like editorials and stuff it's like working with a lot of different pieces and then making them work together in different ways for different looks yes but yet with a running theme a hundred percent yes I get what you mean I've been watching this Netflix show I'm gonna mention it uh because I find it so inspiring abstract um abstract okay yes there are these mini documentaries about design and, you know, if in the burlesque community, I think we, we walk drag race a lot to mm-hmm. get like a visual inspiration and, and uh, similar challenges to what we face. And this show is giving me a bit of the same thing where it's um, looking at different disciplines of design and, and big names in that arena and what they're doing in their work and how they're facing challenges and I'm getting a lot from it for my burlesque so I'd highly recommend it. Your attention to detail in your characterizations are all inspiring from like your hair and wig stylings, accessories to costuming and props. Like how much of this and these creations are you like do you make and how much is a collaboration with other artists? So through the years, it's become much more collaborative um, as I've been able to hire professionals who do the best work in their field to help me out, um, which I think is the case in every discipline. Um, You start out doing everything alone, and then as you get more resources and just meet people, like just meet the right people and make those connections, you can sort of build your team um, that help you make your vision uh, even bigger and better. 
yeah, hair has become so, so important to me. I just, I think from watching other performers on stage, you know, we're always taking notes and I just realized that the hair was impacting how I felt so much more than let's say the makeup. Mm -hmm. Um, it was just giving me a lot more of the, of the mood. So I've invested a lot in my wig collection and just met the right person. So Stéphane Descoteau here in Montreal is just a wig wizard. And I've seen, you know, I gave him the challenge of trying to make everlasting um, sculptures, basically, that I could reuse over and over on my head. And he's become like the go-to person for wigs since... Um, since we started working together also. And so, you know, he's taken all of his knowledge in art and hair and become just this wig superstar. So mm -hmm. I'm thrilled to always be working with him. And then each piece is this different journey for the costume. So it's really hard to generalize. I get asked this question a lot, but it's really one by one. I don't think you can generalize you know so a, a corset is not something that I can make myself I believe in the art of corsetry mm -hmm. um, and so I'm going to find the best person to make a corset if that's what I need mm -hmm. or you know I have this amazing store here in Montreal that even has turn of the century pieces so one of my corsets I got to buy it's like Victorian or it was no sorry it was probably a um a 1960s like theater remake of a Victorian corset mm -hmm. but then you know and then modify that but I'm not a pattern maker but I can you know modify something a lot mm -hmm. so I for example I would do a bra myself but modify yeah. or like make from scratch modify definitely okay. <laughs> yeah I don't encourage my students to make things from scratch either because I'm had bad experiences myself and that probably shouldn't influence them but pattern making I think is something that we should go to school for to get mm -hmm. good at there's a lot we can do DIY but I don't know if pattern making is one of them so I leave that to the experts yeah no and I can fully see that in being fortunate enough to have seen you perform in the flesh like your presentation is immaculate and that's why I was very interested to know if that is something that you make on your own or if you use the resources of other collaborators around you. Definitely use the resources. I think it's dangerous to think that we can do everything the best ourselves and that's something we tend to get caught up in a lot in burlesque because um, it is so DIY and make everything yourself but you know, I believe in, in working with a sound designer to make the soundtrack um, mm -hmm. and really every aspect of it, I think, can be strengthened if you have the the money or resources to bring someone who's really specialized uh, in that part into the project. True. Yeah. So as a teacher, creating choreography for your students and then, of course, as a solo performer, what are some of your tips for executing a successful freestyle performance? Such a good question. Going into a freestyle performance, I wouldn't have the moves planned out, but I would have my arc and my punches. So in the same way as when you're planning an act, I'll know what the big moments are going to be and how I want to finish. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then I would really focus on setting the intention of how I want to connect with the audience and how I want them to feel. Instead of, you know, just seeing what happens, um, it's really up to you. You are the leader, right? So Mm -hmm. you get to decide what type of connection you have with them and what role they're playing. So that can be deciding that your audience is your lover and they should feel embraced by you through the show or deciding that the audience is your mirror and they should feel like they're reflecting back your greatness. Um, you know, really give them, give them a role and that's going to make the performance have a, a, you know, a very literal outcome and tie everything together. So if that stays constant throughout, then it's going to feel like a cohesive piece um, that's not going everywhere. And if you have your big moments, you know, you know that when you feel like you start to lose them or it's, you don't know what to do next. Okay. You fall back on whatever that is. Um, For me, that's often like licking something (laughs) or, (laughs) or, or maybe doing a butt isolation or, or dropping to the floor or the, these things that you know are going to bring, bring the crowd back on your side. Fantastic. The Arabesque Burlesque Academy, which you founded in 2012 with uh, Bonbon Bombay, it's become quite a cornerstone of Canadian burlesque. Can you share with us like some of the diverse reasons people choose to take a class and explore the world of burlesque? Yes. And can I, I want to add something to the question you just asked. It's so, so important if you're going into a freestyle and for any... Uh-huh burlesque performance I'm sorry to backtrack stillness oh my gosh I talk about this so much with my students and try to remind myself because I am constantly catching myself not not moving Mm -hmm. so go into it with the intention to stop at least once or twice Mm -hmm. and if you can place that pause right before or after one of your big moments is going to be that punctuation that it needs to highlight and make people appreciate the that big moment more oh those Uh, are pearls yeah i wanted to mention that um as somebody who's running a an academy and a school for burlesque, you get so many people coming through your doors and everybody has like a different intention of what they want from the class. Like what in your experience are some of the diverse reasons people decide to take a burlesque class as opposed to Pilates or something else, like another dance class? Mm-hmm. I didn't know when I was getting into this industry all of the different reasons people would be interested in burlesque because they're so diverse from mine. Um, And the most common ones that I see are body issues, uh, which can stem from an injury, um, an illness, so recovering from a disconnection or even a sort of loathing of the body that comes from it feeling like it's not on your side or something from your childhood, something from society that told you you weren't good enough in your body. People come to class because they've been single for a long time and 
they want to find a lover that isn't another human, right? And they mm-hmm. find the lover that is that is movement or it, that is themselves or that is just a, a new love of, a, of an art form, of a hobby. Um, you have people coming because they want to make friends. Lots of people mm-hmm. maybe have just arrived in Montreal and, you know, you want to find a hobby that's pretty specific and also reflects your politics and your personality. And so, you know, coming to mm-hmm. a burlesque class of the other people there uh, might be people you connect with and that often mm-hmm. happens you get a lot of friendships which is amazing um, you have people coming because they've been with the same partner for a long time and they want to spice things up uh, mm-hmm. you have people coming with friends because they want to work out and they want to dance you know maybe like me they dance when they were kids and they want a not um, not too disciplined, not too structured way of moving in their body that's fun and also sensual. Mm-hmm. And then you have the people who are stage hungry. They want to get on stage. They want the applause. Mm-hmm. They want to create. They want to, to, to see what others think of their creativity. And I mean, you've also had a lot of success stories, um, stars coming out of the Arabesque Burlesque Academy. Wow. When I think of some of our first graduating classes when I was teaching with Bomb Bomb Bombay, it's pretty star-studded. We had Sugar Vixen mm. and the Foxy Lexi in the same graduating mm-hmm. class. Wow. You know, way back when. And now they're both teaching here at the school. Yeah. Amazing full circle. If I think of the international stage you know, Miami Minx, mm-hmm. uh, Aria de la Noche. Yes, we've been, we've been really lucky. So you've performed on the same stage as Dieter Von Tees. I have, yeah. Like, how did this opportunity come to be and what did you take away from that experience? This happened many years ago now here in Montreal um, and was all made possible by the lovely Lavender May um, who produced a show with her company, Speakeasy Burlesque. She got Dita to come, and she put together this huge cast. Um, what did I get from that? You know, we're backstage, and we're not allowed to... We're Not only are we not allowed to go, you know, into her dressing room, we're not allowed to mm-hmm. go, like, into the area of the backstage where the door to her dressing room might lead. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> this is just a and you, you get a little peek of what it is behind the scenes you know her her manager is in the sound booth I don't think it's her manager anymore but is in the sound in the technician booth during the show like yelling cues live you know mm-hmm. to preserve her image to you know, to make sure that she doesn't end up in a situation like many of us have where we look bad because something in the team is not going right, you know, yes. the, the lighting yes. or the or the sound, you know, that cannot happen to Dita because she mm-hmm. is an untouchable image. But I got to, I went on right before her, so I got to just pass in the wings coming off stage and I was with Sugar and Aria they were this was like way (laughs) way 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 back when I first started mentoring them and they had agreed to be my backup dancers for this number 
And we were so high on adrenaline because we had worked so hard. And so we were squealing like children. Mm -hmm. And then we <laughs> and then we like suddenly realized we're right beside Dita Von Tees. We're just like, uh, <laughs> you know, You're like break a leg out there. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's like, oh, good job. That was really nice. You know, but she's very soft spoken. And mm -hmm. that that was it. Yeah. Cool. Having traveled North America quite extensively, performing burlesque in various festivals, have you noticed any differences in styles between between Canada and the U.S.? I don't yeah. know if you can go by country. I mean, I don't think our culture follows um, national lines. I don't know, it's just yeah. like, well, it's just like for me when people refer to... Um, Canadians, uh, especially from the United States point of view, like Canadians are always like referred to as being a little bit um, more polite. Like there definitely seems to be more of a humility there as opposed to, you know, the United States has that reputation of, you know, like it's this yeah. very over the top, everything there is supposed to be larger than life. Whereas like Canada is generally reflected as the well-mannered sibling. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know if that expresses itself in the burlesque community because we are so much a part of the U.S. circuit. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. we're very, very proud. There's this real proud to be Canadian sentiment, but you still you have to perform in American events to really make an international name for yourself. I think that's pretty unavoidable. So there's there's a lot of back and forth and um, still, you know, all of the big festivals and the big competitions are in the U.S., um, mm -hmm. which I kind of hope and see changing, um, you know, having big events uh, up here in Canada that give you um, a certain notoriety and a certain exposure, I think is really important. I think otherwise I would have to, you know, in terms of style, performers I would have to go city by city rather than country you know I think Canadians are much more polite than New Yorkers but I think most of the U.S. is more polite than New Yorkers in their performance <laughs> and I mean that in the best way possible because impolite burlesque is my favorite burlesque hands down mm -hmm. you know there's more similarity in the performance style in Seattle and Vancouver than there is mm -hmm. um Seattle and Texas if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah 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 2020 has obviously been an extremely challenging year for the performing arts and of course various other industries have you been able to adapt your profession and your business in a sustainable way during this time trying yeah I mean it's forced change so there's so many ways mm. to look at this. Uh, I think every day I wake up and I look at it first from the worst way because I can't help it. I think there's this pessimist mm -hmm. in me. And then I can see it from the best way. So this has meant we now have a Vimeo channel that is a monthly subscription and we have like 20 plus um, video classes now, which... I've been asked for years from my students, oh, it'd be so nice if I could um, review this or continue this or do this class extra times at home. And now they can. So it forced us to do that, which is available to everyone in the world too. So that's um, a huge change. And it's forced us to 
just set up things technologically so that we can easily do live online classes. So all of our classes are live online now currently because the studio is in its second forced closure. But when we were open, it was either in studio or live online. And of course, that is overall really positive because um, people from outside Montreal were able to join us. People who have kids at home were able to join us. People who mm-hmm. um, tried coming and doing the class in a group but were feeling a little bit too self-conscious um, can do it from their living room. So all of this is really is really really positive. And then you know the negative part of the adaptation is just that it isn't the same on a screen mm-hmm. and. <laughs> I think we're still, as teachers, we're still really discovering how to make that experience as good as possible. And Mm -hmm. Roxy Torpedo, one of our teachers, I've been seeing being so creative with how to take advantage of the situation of her students being at home. So, okay, you're in your private space, so you can turn off the lights and do like sweaty improvised dance without feeling self-conscious about people around you, which is a really important part of, of letting go and, and getting into yeah. your burlesque. We're doing a pasty twirling workshop um, tonight with Sugar Vixen for assholes and tassels, mm-hmm. which we do in our progressive classes once we build trust with a certain group. But if people weren't, weren't at home, I don't think we could do as a drop-in class as we are tonight. Um, mm-hmm. So there's... There's a level of a vulnerability that's easier um, to tap into when you're doing it from home. Well, that all sounds pretty awesome, like pretty cool. Yeah. Well done. As we we discussed a little bit earlier off the record, um, South Africa is now in its level one stage, which, as I mentioned before, allows us to have in-person events once again. And Montreal had just had that lifted. But like, how was your return to the stage when you were allowed to do so for that brief period? Yeah, we were open for, um, it was short, like with the, with venues being open, I mean, um, venues were open for like a month and a half. What was it like six weeks, four weeks, something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. but I got to do 10 shows, uh, in that time. Um, which I feel really, really fortunate to have done that. And how did it feel? It felt fucking rusty, you know? (laughs) Oh, man. It's, you know... Not like riding a bike. (laughs) No, I really think it's a muscle that we need to practice. And, I mean, I've been teaching and doing dance and choreographies through the whole quarantine. So for people Mm -hmm. that don't have that um, just part of their daily structure, it can imagine it'd be even harder, but performing is not the same as teaching and I was just talking with my therapist about this today that you know if I was talking to myself as a friend I would say like oh it's it's really normal that it would take you know three to six months for you to just get back into it you know like any discipline if a circus artist stops training it's going to take them a long time to Mm -hmm. get back to peak performance and I think if I'm being forgiving with myself, um, as I am with others, that it's going to take a while to get back. So 
yeah, those 10 shows were super fun and they were also emotional roller coasters. And when I look at the Mm -hmm. videos, you know, it's hard because I'm not as good as I was the day that they turned the lights out. And I appreciate your honesty on that because I think also us spending so much time away from the stage, you know, one tends to glamorize it a little bit more, you know, Mm -hmm. like we're just like, oh my gosh, you can't wait because we think it's going to be the same as when we left. But of course, there's so much difference now. Um, It's going to take a while to get those spokes oiled again. Yeah, I think we have to be gentle with ourselves. So Lady Josephine, what is it that you are currently working on? Is it your pussy act, really? <laughs> is that like your, the next big thing for Lady Josephine? I hope so, yes. But am I working on it? No. <laughs> you know, it was fun to talk about it and it's there. It's on a shelf. Right now I'm a business owner, though. And mm-hmm. um, as a small business owner for the academy, that really is taking up 100% of my time. Um, it was just mm-hmm. a year ago. Um, it was a year, less than a year before the lockdown hit that we had renovated and moved into our own space. That was a huge investment. And so I'm just a small business owner trying to mm-hmm. cover my expenses right now. And the creative part of me is currently on hold, but I'm not, you know, I'm not too worried about it. Uh, Mm-hmm. It'll still be there when I come back to it. And when I did get to do those 10 shows, I created something new and it was wonderful and it was super fun. And as those opportunities come up, I'm going to do them. But I'm not in a place where I have time to rhinestone all the things as others are doing, which I'm super fucking jealous of. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I mean, like, I think most burlesque artists who perform at a professional level are, even if you don't own a a studio or a school, you are a small business. Yes. So yes. it's a lot of hard work at the moment, like, putting yourself out there and being solely responsible for your professional well-being. Yes. I mean, I think the people who have time to sit in rhinestone right now are definitely the minority I'm seeing like you said, so many people taking the business of their brand, their burlesque persona in new directions that is just as consuming as, as having a school, whether it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, Ginger Valentine's um, self-care and flexibility mm-hmm. workshops, or it's your only fans, or it's your online shows or all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Lady Josephine, Thank you so much for sharing your story and your thoughts with us on What's a Tease. We'll definitely be watching as you keep doing amazing things in the wonderful world of Palesque. Yay! Thank you so much. Fun to connect with so, so far away in the world. That's definitely a bonus for these times. Oh, most definitely. Cool. So thank you again, Lady Josephine. You've been amazing. Thanks and sparkles.